Hey, good morning, everybody. Um, my name is also Matt, and which is, the joke gets old eventually, um, for those of you who've been around, but if, if you haven't been around, then it's a fresh joke to you. So my name is Matt as well. Um, and we are super glad that you're here with us this morning. We last week started a, a new series as a church uh, that we're calling Prayer and Prophecy. And so this week we are going to continue on in that series. And really the series is all around prayer, why we pray, how we pray, the different types of prayer. And so if you have a Bible this morning, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 6. I'll read it to you, but if you have a Bible or an app, go ahead and open up to Matthew 6. We will end up picking up in verse 5. But before we get there, let's just pause and pray for a second. Lord, we come to your scriptures this morning and ask for you to illuminate them to us. Every time that we come to your scriptures, we uh, come with our own baggage, our own interpretations, our own uh, agendas. And we pray that uh, somehow, through the power of your spirit, you would, you would clear those things away, that we would be able to just hear purely what you have to say to us uh, right now in Spokane in 2017, in the midst of our sometimes busy and crazy lives, but surely in the midst of a very uh, hurting world. So we pray these things in your name. Amen. So uh, we're going to pick up in verse 5 of Matthew chapter 6. I don't know if, is it, am I like breathing really hard into the microphone? <laughs> okay, that's probably better. Matthew 6, starting in verse 5. Jesus says, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father, who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So for those of you who were around, uh, a couple months ago we did a series through the Sermon on the Mount. And that's where Jesus' teaching is seated, within his kind of masterful teaching, the Sermon on the Mount. And what we looked at when we went over this passage was how it's linked to what Jesus has to say about uh, giving alms and about fasting. And what Jesus does is he warns uh, his followers not to do those things in a hypocritical way. Don't, don't give just so that other people see that you're really generous. And don't, don't pray on the street corners just so that other people see how spiritual you are. And don't, when you're fasting, don't, don't go around and be like, oh gosh, I'm fasting, I'm so hungry, just so that other people will see you. Jesus talks about doing it in sincerity. And so Jesus says here, in this, this teaching on prayer, he says, don't be like the hypocrites who like to pray on the street corners, praying publicly just so that other people can see them. And if you remember last week, we started our series by looking at the Psalms. And, and Matt Deason talked about one of the things that we see throughout the Psalms is just pure honesty. 
is just this real openness coming to God in prayer throughout the Psalms. And sometimes that is saying things that we otherwise would not want to say. And, and, and sometimes we're like afraid to say to God, like we should hide things, that we should cover ourselves up. Like we can't express real honesty to God. But if we read through the Psalms, that's exactly what happens. Real, open, honest prayer to God. And, and Jesus is warning about those same sorts of things here as he warns against hypocrisy. John Wesley, who was a 18th century priest and missionary, he had this to say looking at this passage in Matthew. I think I have a slide of it. He says, Hypocrisy then, or insincerity, is the first thing we are to guard against in prayer. Beware not to speak what thou dost not mean. Prayer is the lifting up of the heart to God. All words of prayer without this are mere hypocrisy. So, so Jesus says that there is a way to pray that is focused on the audience and, and how you are perceived by them, but that's the wrong way to pray. And then Jesus goes on to say, when you pray, don't pray like the pagans do. Uh, Jesus says that even though you aren't, you're not supposed to pray like the leaders who pray on the street corners just to be seen by others, but you're not supposed to pray, you're not supposed to just abandon the way that we pray because you're not supposed to pray like the pagans do either. The word babbling in Greek, what it, what it means is repeated use of words without thinking. And so what, what the pagan and Gentile priests would do is they repeat certain phrases or certain words over and over again as if they were these magical words that they could use to manipulate God or the gods. And Jesus says, that's not the type of prayer you are to engage in either. And just like you aren't supposed to pray on the street corners to show how impressive your spiritual life is, you shouldn't pray like those Gentiles either, repeating phrases over and over again without thinking. Because in that, they're, they're, they're trying to manipulate God by their repetitions. Because, oh, by the way, God already knows what you need before you ask him. Jesus says, don't pray like the hypocrites. And, and don't pray like the pagans. There's a better way to pray. There's a better way. What, what we know, if we uh, look at the Talmud, which is this uh, collection of teachings of the rabbis from around the same time as Jesus, all the way up until like, the year 500, is that what was common for rabbis to do would be to teach their disciples their own prayers. So this happens. This was common for rabbis to do. They, they would pray the common Jewish prayers, but they would also teach their disciples their own specific prayers. And in Luke, we kind of see this because in Luke, the description is that Jesus' disciples come to him and say, hey, Jesus, John the Baptist taught his disciples how to pray. Can you teach us how to pray? And Jesus does. So Jesus says there is a better way to pray. This is how you should pray. And then Jesus starts his prayer with a really profound address to God. Our Father. And it's not just his Father, and it's not just my Father, and it's not just your Father, but our Father. And when we address God in this way, uh, Jesus invites us into the same sort of relationship that the Son has with the Father. He invites you into that same sort of relationship as a son or daughter of God. And, and we are able to say our Father along with Jesus because that's the relationship he invites us into. N.T. Wright, who's a New Testament scholar, uh, looking at the Lord's Prayer, says this. He says, Calling God Father is the great act of faith, of holy boldness, of risk. Saying our Father isn't just the boldness, the sheer cheek of walking into the presence of the living and almighty God and saying, Hi, Dad. 
It is the boldness, the sheer total risk of saying quietly, please may I too be considered an apprentice son. It means signing on for the kingdom of God. What we see from the very outset of the prayer is that every single word that Jesus uses, every clause, every phrase that Jesus uses is really deep. There is a lot behind every single word that he uses. There's deep, profound truth about who God is and what he's doing in the world. And and Jesus' invitation for us to approach God as our Father, sometimes we take it for granted. But, But Jesus shows us in these words what sort of relationship he invites us into and how we are to approach God in prayer. Because like N.T. Wright said, it's a bold claim to call God dad, but it's not just that. It's to approach God and say, God, can I be a son or daughter and to sign on for everything that that entails. So Jesus goes on in his prayer to give really six petitions or intercessions. If you've ever heard the phrase intercessory prayer, this is intercession Six, maybe seven, kind of depending on how you read it. But the first three are all about God. And then the second half is all about us. So those first three, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, and your will be done. Jesus starts the prayer with God, which, which may seem uh, really trivial. It may seem unimportant, like, okay, yeah, duh. But this is crucial as we learn to pray. Because so often we are concerned with our own needs, our own wants, our own kingdoms, our own names. At 90% of my day is spent on my own stuff all the time. And, and oftentimes when I come to God in prayer, instead of praying for his name and his kingdom and his will being done, I pray for my kingdom and my name and my will to be done. And Jesus points us in the opposite direction. We start with God. We start with his name being made holy. His kingdom coming, his will being done. And it's only in that order that then we can turn to our own needs, which Jesus doesn't skip over. Like I said, often in our prayers, we skip over the God bits and we get through the Lord's prayer and be like, okay, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. God, we, there's some things that I really, really need. And then we launch off into the shopping list. But what we have to understand as we learn how to pray from Jesus' model prayer, the Lord's Prayer, is not just that these precise words are good for us to pray, which they are, and we'll come back to that, but it also informs how we pray in general. As followers of Jesus, this prayer is more, more than just taking these precise words, but it informs how we pray in general and live, for that matter. As a side note, this is what it means to pray in the name of Jesus. So out of habit, many of us end our prayers in Jesus' name, amen, as if it was the Christian version of a period to prayers. And what that comes from is Jesus saying, anything you ask in my name will be given to you. And it's not as if Jesus is saying in that instance, hey, there's this magical stamp that if you put it on the end of your words, you'll get a yes out of it. But what Jesus is saying What he's communicating is that when we ask God in line with the person and character and will of Jesus, that's how we're supposed to pray. Because when we come to God alongside Jesus, addressing God as our Father, that is what it means to come in the name of Jesus. We come alongside the person and character of Jesus. Because a name in ancient Israel was not just the vowels and consonants that you use to refer to someone. Someone's name was representative of their character, of their nature. 
And we'll come back to that when we get to hallowed be your name. So as we look back down at this prayer, we see that Jesus starts the prayer with, with these three statements about God. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. And these three petitions reflect God's work in the world since before time. So if you think back to the beginning, if you think back to Genesis and the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Eden was meant to be a place where, where humanity ruled and reigned in the name of God. It was a place where God's presence would be here on earth, his kingdom would be established here on earth, and his will would be done. But we know the story. Sin enters the world, and, and humanity rejects God. They reject his rule and reign. And even in the face of this rejection, God goes to work to rescue humanity. So what does he do? He reveals his name to a people, to Israel. And then he promises them a kingdom, and, and a kingdom where he would be present with them. And then he, re- he reveals to them his will. And then in Jesus, God's name, again, not just the vowels and consonants that we use to refer to God, but his, his character and his nature, God's name is regarded as holy in Jesus. It's blessed, it's praised, it's exalted, it's, ador- it's adored. In Orthodox Judaism, the way that you refer to God is Hashem, which is just the name. So what we see in Jesus is that the name is shown to be is revealed as holy. And in Jesus, God's kingdom comes. So in his teaching, in his healing, in what he has to do in the world as he sets people free, as he pours out his spirit, God's kingdom comes in Jesus. And then in Jesus, God's will is done fully and perfectly. So when you pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, you, you are praying for the very things that God has been at work doing since before time began. And as Jesus teaches us to begin by praying for God's work in the world, he also teaches us to pray for our own needs. So we start with joining in with God, his mission, his work in the world, his desire to reconcile and rescue the world, and then we turn to our own needs and wants. As I said before, we often get that backwards. We often start with our own needs. But it's not as if Jesus neglects the very real needs of humanity. Jesus captures some very real needs. Hunger. But not only hunger for food and water, but hunger for justice and hunger for forgiveness and hunger for deliverance. Jesus knows that these needs, they're not trivial, they're not superfluous, as if the best thing were to do to just pray for the kingdom to come and, okay, if you have to pray for things to survive, then you can. That's not how Jesus teaches us to pray. Jesus teaches us exactly how to pray for the very real needs that we have. Which at this point, you start to think, okay, but didn't Jesus just say, he, God knows what you need before you ask for him? Didn't he just say that? So why do we need to ask for those things? Well, the key here to understand is that our prayers do not inform God. They're not presenting new information to God. But this doesn't mean that our prayers don't possibly change what would happen. Many times, followers of Jesus operate out of this sort of deterministic worldview where it's like, well, God's going to do what he's going to do. And that really stifles any sort of prayer. We're like, well, God's just going to do it whatever he wants to do anyways. But that's not how Jesus teaches us to pray. That's not how the rest of the New Testament teaches us to pray. There's this really interesting comment in James 4. 
So James is writing a letter, and in James 4, he says, there are things that you want, but you don't have them, and so what you do is you fight and you kill one another for them. He says, you have not because you do not ask God. Which is weird, right? God knows what I need, but there's still something unique and special that happens when I ask him. Yes. Or you can think about some of the parables that Jesus uses to teach on prayer. One of them from Luke 18. Jesus tells this parable of the persistent widow. There's this widow who keeps coming to this unjust judge over and over and over again, asking for justice. And finally, the judge grants it. And then Jesus says this, Will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? There's something that happens in the asking. Jesus also asks this rhetorical question. He says, Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Jesus' point in these parables is that the judge knows what the widow wants, but that there is something special that happens when she comes to him over and over again. And the parent knows what their child needs, and yet there's something special that happens for the parent or for the judge when there's an ask. So why do we pray if it's not informing God? Well, I think two reasons. One, when we pray, we're not informing God. But even though we're not informing God of new information, the act of us praying very well may change what could happen. Or it can motivate God to act or to move or to provide in ways they otherwise wouldn't. That's a consistent teaching throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. But second, prayers also do something to us. We can't underestimate the fact that when we pray, we're coming to the God who knows how to provide and knows what we need. And our prayers actually teach us to rely on the one God who can actually provide our deepest needs. So our prayers actually do something to ourselves as well. And so we, we do come to God with real, honest, legitimate needs for bread, for forgiveness, for freedom from fear. And as we do, we realize that we can't just pray for my daily bread, but it's a communal prayer. Jesus teaches us to pray for our daily bread. So we can't pray this prayer and neglect the fact that there's millions of people around the world who didn't have bread yesterday, who won't have bread today, and who more than likely won't have bread tomorrow. And so Jesus teaches us to pray not only for ourselves, but for all of humanity. See, Jesus lived in a world that was full of hunger, but not just hunger for bread, but hunger for justice and hunger for deliverance and for forgiveness. And when he teaches the first disciples to pray, he's speaking into, into a world that is full of injustice, it's full of hunger, it's full of malice, it's full of evil, which is not unlike the world that we live in today. I mean, honestly, if you were to pull out your phone and open the news app or the CNN app, probably the top three things that you would see are racism, mass shootings, and and like the threat of nuclear war. We live in a world that is just as much marked by those things today. And Jesus teaches his disciples to pray not only for themselves, for their own comfort or for their own blessings or simply for their own benefit, but Jesus teaches his disciples to pray for the very real needs of all of humanity, for provision, for forgiveness, and for liberation from evil. 
So Jesus teaches his disciples and he teaches us to pray for daily bread, for provision for physical needs. But he also teaches us to pray for forgiveness because, well, we need forgiveness. Each and every one of us needs forgiveness of our sins, of our debts, of our trespasses, of the ways that we have harmed our fellow man, of the ways that we have rejected God and worshipped other things. So we pray, God, forgive us. But notice, once again, that the prayer, Jesus' prayer, is not somehow removed from real life. Jesus' model for prayer, interestingly, teaches us to pray, God, forgive us just as we forgive other people, which implies that we are a forgiveness kind of people. It implies that not only are we praying for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done, but that we are actually living the kind of lives where the kingdom of forgiveness is revealed in us and that we forgive as he has taught us to do. We cannot have one without the other. We can't pray for the kingdom of forgiveness to come for ourselves to be forgiven without being a forgiving people. Jesus even goes on to explain that later in this passage if you want to go on and read it later today. Jesus' last phrase in the prayer points us to a a reality of our lives which we often neglect. He says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one or deliver us from evil. So why do we pray that? Well, the reality is, in, in the words of the New Testament, we live in the middle of a war zone. Later on in our series on prayer, we'll actually talk about spiritual warfare and kind of go more in depth about it. But the imagery that we get in Scripture is that there are spiritual forces of darkness who stand against God and his kingdom. And, and we see that in the Gospels, and we see that in the book of Acts. In the Gospels, that's when Jesus is, is taken into the desert to be tempted by Satan, or when he confronts sickness, or when he confronts demons. In the book of Acts, it happens all the time with sickness and demons. And in the book of Ephesians, Paul says that we are to put on armor. But it's not physical armor, because our struggle, he says, is not against flesh and bone, but it's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So so Jesus teaches us here to pray in light of that reality. God, don't let us go into a time of trial. And God, don't let our trial become temptation. God, liberate us from evil. Deliver us from the evil one. God, free us. God, protect us from the things that we don't see or we don't often see or we often ignore. God, we need you. Now, in the earliest manuscripts of Matthew 6, that's where Jesus' prayer ends. But many of us, uh, from very early on, learned this prayer and learned an extra phrase at the end. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. Amen. Uh, it seems to most scholars, which is why it's not in the, new, uh, the NIV translation, um, that this was a later edition by the early church because they used this prayer in their prayer and worship. And so they adapted this, this phrase from 1 Chronicles 29 and added it onto the end. And I think that that shows us and gives us a great transition to start thinking about how does the Lord's Prayer inform how we pray? Because the reality is for thousands of years, billions of Christians have prayed these words. From very early on in church history, we see that Jesus' prayer is taken And it's not only prayed as individuals, but it's prayed as a church. Because the church recognized that this is how we ought to pray. 
And there's deep things in each of the words and each of the clauses that Jesus used. And I've just given like the slightest overview, but I, I literally had to cut down from what otherwise would have been like 30 pages worth of notes because there is so much out there on the Lord's Prayer. I mean, N.T. Wright has a great book called The Lord in His Prayer. Uh, Karl Barth has this book on uh, looking at the reformers and how they understood the Lord's Prayer. There's probably thousands of books out there that you could read on the Lord's Prayer. So if you're interested in more, just come and talk to me and I'll give you some good resources. But what one implication that Jesus' teaching has for us is that we should pray this prayer. So I can remember when I was new to the Bible, as like a freshman in college, and I read this passage and I was like, man, Christians are dumb. Jesus says, this is how you should pray. But I hear Christians all the time praying not like this and not praying this. So if Jesus, what, what, what gives? If Jesus said pray this way, why do people not pray this way? Now, we can easily fall into what Jesus warns against earlier, uh, that repeating things over and over again without thinking, assuming that somehow with repetition God, we can manipulate God into acting on our behalf. But if we can truly pray these words, then we should. I imagine that some of you are thinking, well, scripted prayers are not heartfelt, they're not genuine, and they they can be like robotic. Yes, they absolutely can be. But they can also focus us, and they can also help us know words to pray and how to pray in instances that we otherwise wouldn't know. So I personally like to use scripted prayers in my devotional life. Because it expands the language that I, that I use and it helps keep me focused. Often, uh, when I pray off the cuff, I get stuck in these ruts of g- giving thanks for the same things or asking for the same things all the time, which isn't inherently bad, but, but thinking through and praying through scripted prayers can actually expand how we pray and it can help keep us focused. As I mentioned before, the common Jewish practice uh, for Jesus, for his contemporaries, and then for the early church was to pray specific prayers in morning, afternoon, and evening. And the timing is meant to correspond to the three daily temple sacrifices. So uh, we see that throughout early church history, but even going back all the way to Daniel. Daniel is someone who uh, gets in trouble for praying the three daily prayers. And I don't have time to go into each of those, but if you're interested, come and talk to me. And we we can talk a little bit about some resources that you might try out. What I didn't realize when I was new to the Bible was that Jesus prays publicly and privately in different ways than the Lord's Prayer. And Stephen prays and John prays and Paul prays and Peter prays all in different ways. And so what I fundamentally misunderstood was that this is not the only way that we can ever pray. This is, this is a way to pray and a good prayer to pray, but Jesus invites us into much more. What I want to just end us with is thinking through how this, how the Lord's Prayer can, can kind of be a springboard for us as we pray, as we learn how to pray. So anytime that I pray just off the cuff spontaneously, what I try to think through and what I try to start with is God, giving thanks to God, praying for his mission, his work in the world. I pray for that first before I pray for my own needs and my own wants. And this is also why we structure things the way that we do here at River's Edge. So for those of you who were here, we had a a day of prayer before we launched into the the fall and the vision series. And what we did was we had three seasons of prayer. So we broke up into groups and we were praying. But we didn't start with praying for ourselves. We started praying for God's work in the world and across the world. 
And then we started praying for Spokane, and we started praying for other amazing churches in Spokane who were doing awesome work, and we had some representatives here that we prayed for. And then only last did we pray for ourselves. And the reason that we did that and the way that we structure that is directly a result of the Lord's Prayer. So I have three more suggestions for how you might implement this in your own prayers. First, there's this this time-honored method of making the Lord's Prayer the framework for your regular daily praying. So what you do is you work through the phrases in the Lord's Prayer and you hold each of those in the back of your mind and then you call to the front of your mind different things under that heading that you might pray for. So for example, when you're praying, thy kingdom come, it would be odd if within that you didn't also pray for the peace of the world. Or, or you didn't also pray for the victims of the shooting in Las Vegas. Or you, or you didn't also pray for our country, which is seemingly like the, the, the national narrative is centered around hatred. Or when you pray for our daily bread, it would be odd if you didn't also pray for your neighbors, or for Spokane, or for Sudan. When, when we work through the prayer, this is one way to do it, kind of holding each of those phrases in the back of our mind and then praying through kind of subheadings underneath each of those. Second, a way to use the Lord's Prayer uh, is in the same way that some people use the Orthodox Jesus Prayer. So for those of you who are unfamiliar with that, there is um, an ancient Christian practice, which is a breath prayer. So just in one breath, you can pray this Orthodox Jesus Prayer, which is, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy. And it's just a prayer that you can pray in one breath. And so what you can do with the Lord's Prayer is take each of the phrases and then just repeat it slowly over again and again, just in the rhythm of your breathing so that it it becomes sort of second nature of the way, not only that you pray, but of the way that you view the world. It becomes woven into the fabric of your life. So you can try this. The next time that you're, you're on a long drive, turn off the radio and pray through each of the clauses of the Lord's Prayer. And for those of us who live really busy and, and frenetic lives, we, we might find that that's really, really difficult, but it's also really, really good. Lastly, a, a one way to use the Lord's Prayer is... Uh, to take each of the clauses and make it like your prayer for the day. So, I think I broke it out in the next slide. Maybe I don't have, I don't know. Um, Yeah. So what you can do is break it out into seven days. And on Sunday, you can pray just under the subheading, Our Father. And then on Monday, you can pray under the subheading, Hallowed be your name. And then again, for each of those days, they just become a lens through which you pray and a lens through which you view the world. So one last thought, just as we come to the table this morning, uh, and returning to the phrase, give us this day our daily bread. In one sense, Jesus is absolutely talking about real physical needs that we all have, but real physical bread. But if you're familiar with the scriptures, Jesus calls himself the bread of life. And, the, and on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, he took matzah, and he broke it, And he said, take, eat, this is my body broken for you. And so the reality is that when we pray, give us this day our daily bread, one of the things that we are praying for is God's provision 
of himself, of Jesus giving himself to us. And so what we do when we come to the table this morning is we remember not only the way in which God has, has given himself definitively on the cross, but as we take communion this morning, we remember the ways in which God has given himself to you today. So what we're going to do uh, as, the, uh, as we start singing again, I'll just invite anyone who uh, calls himself a follower of Jesus is invited to the table. The way that we do communion here is intinction is what it's called. You dip the, the matzah in the grape juice. And then hold on to it. So grab it, dip it, and then take it back to your seat. And then we'll take it all as a family together after this next song.